From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, genetic testing for retinoblastoma and anatomical room for MIGS at the 2017 AAO meeting. We allow those fertilized eggs to to grow to the eight-cell stage, and then we sample each and every one of them. First this. There's a lot to be said for the printed page. It's always on, loads instantly, it's very high resolution, and there's no monthly fee. But one thing it's not is interactive. I know journals have advertised interactive content and multimedia, but to get to it, you need to type a URL in a computer. iWorld AR changes all that. Once you have the app, you simply aim your phone at an iWorld page with the AR symbol and videos, interactive material, presentations, and podcasts appear in the page. Amazing! The effect is stunning and the app is free. Go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and search iWorld AR. That's so great. That's one word with no spaces. iWorld AR. Great job. Search iWorld AR, one word, on the App Store or the Play Store. It's like ophthalmology's secret decoder ring. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2017 meeting of the American Academy of Ophthalmology in New Orleans. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on the iWorld Replay website as brief videos. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Carol Shields on genetic testing for retinoblastoma and Randy Craven on the anatomical room for MIGS. I'm here with Carol Shields. Carol, you have a wonderful talk, interesting subject, um, which is genetic testing for retinoblastoma. Uh, and, and why it why it matters. So I'm 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 going to start from the end here, which is why 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 does it matter? If it's not to determine the diagnosis, let's say that for whatever reason you're certain that the patient has got retinoblastoma, why do I want to do testing? Sure, Josh. Um, so the diagnostic testing for retinoblastoma is not to establish the cytology, like this patient has retinoblastoma, it's to establish the mutation in the genome of the patient and the family to determine if the patient has germline or somatic mutation. Uh, Somatic mutation means that you only have the mutation in the eye, in the tumor, whereas germline mutation means you have the mutation in every cell in your body, and that poses a danger to the patient. But, but Carol, if I, if if a, a a biopsy or some some sort of mechanism by which I determine uh, the genetic testing for the for the tumor and I identify what the mutation is. How on earth is that going to tell me whether it is germline, hereditary, or somatic, what we used to call sporadic? I mean, it's yeah. a gene. Yeah, sure. So we used to use those terms. Uh, 
sporadic and hereditary or unilateral and bilateral. Now we speak in terms of germline and somatic. And the way we do this is we get a blood sample from the patient who has retinoblastoma, and then we get a sample from the tumor. But we can only get the sample from the tumor if the patient has a nucleation. This comes to like a, a different level of a problem now because we don't enucleate eyes very much anymore. We're saving most of these eyes with intravenous or intraarterial chemotherapy. But we can take a sample of the aqueous and get extracellular DNA huh. in the eye that might give a clue to the, uh, to the idea of what the exact genetic mutation is in this child. Um, we can also compare the blood to known mutations. So if a patient has positive eye retinoblastoma gene mutation and positive blood mutation, they're germline. And we have to look at other systemic considerations in the germline kids. Like, like what? And, and, and are these considerations limited to that, that, that proband, to that single patient, or is this something I have to worry about with the family? Yeah, living? sure, Josh. So once a child is found to have germline mutation, we have to take a step back and look at the parents to see if one of the parents hiddenly, secretly carries germline mutation. So we check both parents. And if one of the parents carries germline mutation and doesn't show retinoblastoma, we have to check other family members because this could be a pervasive, low penetrant mutation in this family that might pop up every few generations. Now it's important to know who has germline because they're at risk for three important things. Number one, they're at risk for pinealoblastoma in the brain. They're at risk for long-term second cancers 20, 30 years down the road. And then they're at risk to pass the gene onto their kids. So we have ways of getting that gene out of the genome. So well, let me, I was going to go into something else. What do you mean we've got ways of getting it out of the yeah, gene? Yeah, so we can do what's called in, uh, in vitro or prenatal genetic diagnosis where we do, we hyperstimulate the mother and produce like eight or 10 or 12 eggs. Then we do in vitro fertilization. We allow those fertilized eggs to, to grow to the eight cell stage. And then we sample each and every one of them looking for RB1 mutation. And if we find the four or five that don't carry RB1 mutation, we will selectively implant those into the mother so she can carry a normal fetus with no RB1 mutation. It's a way of engineering the RB1 gene out of the family genome. Yeah, that's that's so so yeah. interesting. Um, so uh, let's say that we we know clinically that this patient for sure has got a mutation that is germline. It is presenting in both eyes, or there's some other reason that we know uh, that it's germline. Uh, what is the case for genetic testing for a patient like that? We've established that this is a mutation that is germline. Yeah. So, I mean, we think all children with retinoblastoma should have genetic testing. Uh, whether you have bilateral or unilateral disease, it's very important to establish the mutation for that family because that will be the gold standard by which future progeny are checked against. So we need to know where the mutation is because in the future we won't have to sample the DNA in the tumor itself. We can just go blood to compare to the known mutation in that family. Huh, really, really interesting. So all of this stuff is predicated on your, um, on, on, on your being able to identify 
the genetic errors in a large percentage of patients with retinoblastoma. How, what, what percent of the, the retinoblastoma population, for what percent of this population do you have markers? Do, yeah. you, do, you, have, do you know if Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I don't personally do the genetic testing myself. We have a genetics lab that does this, and there are uh, national labs that will accept uh, specimens. And most of the labs now can identify about 95 to 96 percent of the mutations for retinoblastoma. So we know most of them. And I remember growing up in the era where every month a new paper would come out and say, oh, three more mutations identified in retinoblastoma. Now we know most of them. Huh, really, really, really interesting. Do the mutations carry any prognostic value for the, for the patients? Uh, another good question. So one mutation versus another mutation doesn't mean the patient's at any higher risk for more aggressive tumor or greater risk for metastasis. It just, it just underscores uh, where that family is at risk for passing this on to their, their progeny. Um, there is one certain mutation that's not seen in the germline. It's only seen in somatic mutation, and that's called the MCN mutation. This is seen in unilateral retinoblastoma. It tends to be a more aggressive tumor, and it's detected at a younger age in children with unilateral RB. And um, this, we test the blood against the tumor in the eye, and the tumor in the eye shows the MCN mutation, uh, initially discovered in Toronto. Carol, where can this testing be done? So most large universities uh, have access to um, a genetic center that could potentially do this testing. We have our testing done at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Philadelphia where our retinoblastoma center is, and they do very good work. And if you don't have a center in your city, you can always send the blood to Impact Genetics up in Toronto. I have no financial interest. They do a beautiful job um, analyzing genetic material, particularly for eye cancers. Carol, this is really, really, really interesting stuff. I mean, of course, of clinical value, but you know, from yeah. a scientific standpoint, yeah. really, really interesting stuff. I want to thank you for making this also very, very clear and for being so very generous with your time with us today. Okay, thank you, Josh. I'm here with Randy Craven. Randy, when, when I counsel patients on whom I intend to, to, to do MIGS, obviously in the context of cataract surgery, I tell them, if I tell you that we're going to do cataract surgery, 99% chance an implant lens is going in. If I tell you that we're going to do MIGS, 65% of the chance we're actually going to do MIGS, 35% of the chance, I don't tell them exactly this way, I'm going to get in and I'm going to find out that there's not enough room for me to do what I, what I want to do. Now, I gonio all of my patients pre-op, and these are, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, these are not patients with narrow angles, but I get in there and there just isn't room. Randy, what should I, I be doing to get that 65% up to uh, the, the predictability of being able to complete the surgery more in the range of the cataract portion of the surgery? Josh, that's a very contemporary question. That's exactly a question that I've had myself. And our tools that we have available are gonioscopy, somewhat slit lamp, and you could maybe say the Van Herrick might help you a little bit, but, but really the OCT is one of our most powerful tools that we use for looking at that. And that question even goes beyond just MIGs, but maybe implantable devices going in the front of the eye, for instance, with sustained release. So we did do a study recently where we compared between gonioscopy and OCT to try to find out 
when should you do an OCT? And, and tell tell me tell me about the 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 study, and I'm interested primarily right now in what the mean mean outcome measures were for the for the study, be, because. OCT of the angle and gonioscopy, although they're approaching the uh, same, same question, are really apples and, and, and oranges, I yes. mean, with the data that they, they produce. Yeah, well, it was a comparative study. It was done in uh, several centers across the globe. We did include some in Asia and China. Uh, because of the incidents or the ability to find people with more narrowed angles. We wanted right. to have some of those. So uh, through these multiple centers, we uh, had uh, well over 200 patients that we evaluated with gonioscopy initially. We used both the Spath classification and the Schaefer, but basically most of the reality showed that if we just used the one through four Schaefer grade, that was probably the most reasonable to use. And, and what we found is with the grade four Schaefer wide open angle, most of the time when we compared that with an intersegment OCT, uh, indeed it was wide open and there was enough space for a MIGS implant or an implantable device to go up in the front of the eye. And the study was designed specifically to look just at the space and the comparison between gonioscopy and OCT. And what, what did you find? Tell me. What so were so what we found is if you, if you have a grade 4 angle, you're good to go. Uh, you can rest assured that there's going to be enough space to... Uh, if it's a Zen, for instance, if you're putting the Zen in, it's not going to touch the iris and get occluded by the iris. These are things we need to know. These are contemporary MIGS questions. Or if you're going to implant an implant, like a sustained release of some sort, there's enough space for that. Once you get to the grade three, though, um, you know, almost uh, a third of the time we're uh, finding that the space that's in the angle between that kind of peripheral bend of the iris as it gets up towards the meshwork isn't as much as you would hope for maybe and there's undulations obviously that we see and sometimes that's brought out a little bit better with OCT than we're able to see on gonioscopy so it helped us kind of fret that out so basically the, the take-home message is that if somebody has a grade three or less angle for sure you should probably get an OCT to see what the space is uh, if you're looking at an implantable device of some sort MIGS I think it would be helpful I don't you know not everybody has an intersegment OCT and we certainly can use the intersegment module on some of the standard OCTs to, to look at these sort of things and that's a challenge for a lot of people to, to learn how to implement that in their practice but I think it's a practical consideration that we'll be looking at for the future with our with our patients so I'm going to ask you a, a, a very very tough question I don't know whether you're going to be able mm -hmm. to answer it but so if I decide that I'm going to do an OCT of the angle for all of my patients for whom I intend to do MIGS mm -hmm. what should my criteria be I mean where 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 how am I going to say you know this is trouble okay so if you're <clears throat> if you're doing a um, an angle procedure especially one that involves a trabecular bypass and where the the stent will be coming out of the meshwork, say an eye stent, and as it angles towards the iris, okay, that space between the tip of the implant and the iris is really crucial, okay? And the same thing with an implantable sustained release device as it would go in the angle, that, that space is crucial. So, so what you would look for, if you see a, a grade four wide open angle, and especially if they're pseudophagic patients, for instance, there you're probably pretty safe and you don't need to do the, the OCT. So then once you, but if you, let's say you find it's a grade three angle on your, on your grading, then as you look at the OCT, what you want to do, and normally we look at the angle opening distance, 
And that's somewhat useful because it's looking at the shortest arc length kind of between the scleral spur and the, and the, and the iris. But really it's more of a space around kind of space that's in there because you have the stent coming in or if an implant or something like that. So we've kind of devised a little bit of a different system where we're using kind of a circle to put in there to look at the space and, and to evaluate that. So when somebody's doing it, if they look at the angle opening distance, they have to realize that there's going to be different undulations and different angles that they do. So you may want to get a couple cross sections through the angle, look at that and compare it, and make sure that you have um, enough width in there that it would equal the, the, for instance, the end of the eye stint if it were sticking out into the, uh, into the, in the anterior chamber and towards the iris, or if it's an implant going in the eye, that you have enough space for that. So these are the kind of things you need. I have one last, last question. Yeah. If I do this and I look at the um, angle and uh, it's a little bit shy of what I think that I'm, that I'm going to need, can't I bank on the angles opening up once I take the cataract out? You know, it was fascinating to me as we looked at the pseudophagic guys in this study uh, that, that had, and we didn't do it before and after surgery, so this was a, you know, they'd already had the event, whatever, or they were phagic or they were pseudophagic. Uh, but as we looked at it, uh, even those pseudophagic guys, it's that peripheral iris recess doesn't seem to, to vary that much uh, in pseudophagus compared to phagic guys. I'm not certain that the peripheral angle changes or opens up as much as we think we do. It may be more the whole iris diaphragm falls back a little bit, but that peripheral recess I think still stays a little bit narrowed some because of just that bend that the iris has as it comes up where it inserts. And I, I didn't see that much difference in the configuration. So I don't think that, that I would necessarily trust that 100%. Really, really, really yeah. interesting and super-duper practical stuff. Randy, I want to thank you for, for, for bringing this, this really cool topic to us uh, and for being so very generous with your time with us you today. Bet. Carol Shields is director of the Ocular Oncology Service at the Will's Eye Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Randy Craven is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute in Bethesda, Maryland. Ask questions of Dr. Shields, Dr. Craven, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.